Hello and welcome to the BVC Podcast. Here at Brownsburg Vineyard Church, we want you to know that we are a group of ordinary people that serve an extraordinary God. Our mission is to honor God and advance His kingdom by building disciples who will give their lives to changing the world. Whether you are local or joining us from a distance, we want to thank you for being a part of our family. To learn more about us, you can visit thebvchurch.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's message. survive the last four or five of these lock-ins, uh, but this year he got sick in, right in the middle of the lock-in, and so uh, so he is home recovering, and Mandy's stepping in to lead our middle school youth, so, so keep Christian in your prayers. Um, also, Jamie mentioned about life group leaders. For those of you who are newer here, we uh, gather in life groups during the week, and it's just a fantastic way of developing relationships, getting support that we need in our life, and growing in our faith. And so we'll have a new semester of life groups starting around the middle of January. So uh, through all of the Christmas and, and holiday season, uh, we're, we're trying to prepare for those life groups. So if you've led a life group in the past or you think about uh, you might want to lead a life group in the future, then now would be the time to, to sign up for that, and we'll get you all connected. So let me just... Uh, pray this morning. Uh, God, I thank you so much for uh, the time of worship that we had and for the things you're already starting to move and in, uh, just stir in our hearts. Um, I just thank you, God, that you are always at work in our lives. Uh, and God, I, I know that the place in the, the journey that each of us are at is very unique to each of us. And uh, for as many people there are in this room, that's how many different journeys are happening. Yet you, God, know each and every journey. You know where each and every one of us is at, the burdens that we're carrying, the concerns that we have, the hopes and the dreams. And so I just thank you, God, that you are going to enter time and space in this very moment into our lives to exactly where we are at, precisely where we are at. And you're going to speak to us and you're going to minister to us. And I do pray that you would give us eyes to hear, eyes to see, and ears to hear what it is that you're wanting to say to us personally. That each person in this room today would leave here saying, I just met with God. In Jesus' name, amen. As, uh, as we are kind of full swing now in the, the Christmas season, I think all of us have a Christmas list, and on that Christmas list are the names and the gifts that we are responsible for buying, and some of you may have more names and more gifts to buy, depending on the size of your family or your role, but I think if we were all honest, however many names um, and gifts that we have on our list, that there's really two very distinct types of gifts that we buy. And the first one are gifts of obligation. Gifts of obligation are those gifts that we give kind of because it's the right thing to do, the traditional thing to do, um, maybe the expected things to do. So gifts that you buy for those of you who are old enough, the newspaper boy, the milkman, 
you know, all, all of the people who do things for you. Maybe a gift that you might buy for your neighbor or a gift exchange at work. There, there, there are signs of appreciation and love, but, but you kind of just do it because you're expected to do it. And that's a big part of Christmas, and that's fine. Gift giving is great. But there's not necessarily a lot of emotion behind those gifts of obligation. It's just the right thing to do. There's another group on that list, probably a smaller group, and those are gifts of expectation. Those are the gifts that we have been looking for and waiting for. The gifts that we buy two months ahead of time, four months ahead of time, six months ahead of time. Those gifts that we're listening for as, as that person is, is talking about their hobbies, about their life, about their wants, and we're picking up clues, and we, and we can't wait. And, and maybe the greatest uh, element of expectation of these gifts is that we, we want to be there, and, and we want to see the very moment that they open that gift, and it meets their wishes. And, and that's the fun of Christmas, especially if you have little kids and, and you know that they're expecting this gift. That's a great part about what Christmas is. Today we're beginning our Christmas series entitled The Gift of Love, Learning to Love Like Jesus. And as we begin this series, I want you to, to understand that Jesus was the greatest gift of anticipation that was ever given. When God put the gift of love together, when God thought about the gift of love, when God wrapped the gift of love, He was anticipating you. And inasmuch as Jesus was given to the whole world, there was a very personal aspect to the gift of Jesus, that God knew ahead of time, before you were even born, He was anticipating the moment that the gift of love would come into your life. He was anticipating the look on your face when you received Jesus. He couldn't wait until the moment that your life was dramatically changed because of the gift of Jesus. He, he couldn't wait until the moment that you were standing in church and, and singing songs just about how much you love the gift of Jesus. The gift of Jesus wasn't just given to the, the whole world in this huge group. He was given to each and every one of us individually. And when putting together the gift of love, and when thinking about that gift of love, God was thinking about you. Jesus was given to very specific people, to very specific individuals, with individual names, individual pasts, and individual needs. And so, throughout this series, we're going to discover some of the very specific people that this gift of love was given to, in the Christmas narrative. And what we're going to discover is that many of the people whom this gift of love was given to were not the people that you would expect to receive a gift of this value, a gift of this worth, a gift that represented this much love and this much sacrifice. This isn't the type of gift that you would think these type of people would receive type of gift that was just wrapped with value and thoughtfulness and kindness. Today we're going to begin a ser this series by looking at how God gave the gift of love to those who were the enemies of God. I have a, a friend, and um, I'm not going to tell you who she is, um, but she works on staff 
and she was recently on the stage making announcements, but those are all the clues that I'm going to give you about her identity. Her last name rhymes with Datsun, for those of you who remember Datsun vehicles. So this friend of mine who shall go unnamed is a Christmas movie nutcase. She starts watching Christmas movies July 5th. Like once July 4th is over, Christmas kicks in and she starts watching Christmas movies. If you happen to be a Christmas movie buff, you will know this, that every good Christmas movie has an antagonist in it. It has that person who is the bad guy going all the way back to Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life, the mean, cruel Mr. Potter. And then you have Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, he wasn't a very nice guy. And then after him, you have, of course, the classic, The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. And then in All of Home Alones, you had Harold and Marvin, the Wet Bandits. And then in the Christmas story, you had Scott Farkas. Just look at that face. And then don't put the last one up quite yet, because this one's a little controversial. The world isn't divided whether this is a Christmas movie or not, but for those who believe that Die Hard is a Christmas movie, you have Hans Gruber. What all of these characters have in mind is they're all antagonists in Christmas movies, but the other thing that they have in common is that they're all fictional. They're all make-believe. We know that. They're not real. But as we open our Bibles and as we open ourselves to the Christmas narrative and the story of Christ's birth, we find that we have a very, very real antagonist named King Herod. We're introduced to King Herod actually through the Magi, uh, who we will be hearing about later in this series. The Magi come from foreign lands, and they come to Jerusalem, they come to Samaria, to the Bible lands, and they make this pronouncement, we are here to worship the King of the Jews. And little did they know the heart of the antagonist. Little did they know what they were setting in motion in King Herod's heart and mind upon hearing those words. Little did they know what their words would set off in King Herod's mind. Pick this up in Matthew 2. When King Herod heard the Magi's coming to worship Christ, he was disturbed. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child as soon as you find him. Report to me so that I too may go and worship him. And you can kind of hear the villain voice. <laughs> he had a plan. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. When the Magi had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. Today we're going to be taking a look at King Herod, who he was, and what he represents. It's important for us to understand that King Herod was a very real antagonist. He's not make-believe. All of the historical books record King Herod as actually living. All of the archaeological digs and evidence proves that this was a very real person. He was a very successful king. 
You had King Augustus who was over all of Rome, and then King Herod was kind of a smaller king who had been given authority over Samaria, kind of the, the Bible lands. And, and so he built aqueducts, and he built temples, and he was very successful, and he brought great wealth to this area, but he was also a very vile, vile person. He had ten wives and fourteen kids, and he dealt with mental illnesses for most of his life, so much so that at one point he killed one of his wives, two of his children, and several other of his family members. And he finally died after a failed attempt to commit suicide. These are the things that we know about King Herod. We also know, for the sake of today's message and this story, that Herod, in the birth narrative, represents what it means to be an enemy. What it means to be an enemy of God, what it means to be the enemy of Jesus. Jesus had many enemies in his life, but Herod kind of was the face of what an enemy means. Jesus died and passed the gospel on to the apostles, and the apostles faced many enemies who crucified and martyred them. Throughout church history, the church has faced many enemies who have martyred many Christians and killed many Christians. And in your life and my life, as we sit here today, you and I have Herods in our life. You and I have people in our life who have hurt us and wounded us and who have stood against us. And it was King Herod, the real character, and it was also all of the representatives of King Herod, all of the enemies through history and all of the enemies in your life that Jesus was referring to in Matthew 5 when he said, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. So as we begin this series, The Gift of Love, we need to remember that Jesus, this carefully curated and kind and loving gift, wasn't just given to the people who deserved Him. Jesus, the gift of love, wasn't just given to kind of friends and family and fans, all of the people that we love. It wasn't like God just had this very special exclusive list, and only those people got the gift of Jesus. The gift of Jesus wasn't just given to those people who abide by the laws and pay their taxes. The gift of love wasn't uh, given to those people who drive the speed limit and never cut people off. Whether it's given to those people who aren't rude and who don't annoy you, the gift of Jesus was given to our very enemies. The people who have hurt us the most. People who have disappointed us the most. And the fact that the gift of love was given even to our enemies tells us that the truest expression of love is when we choose to show love to those who have shown no love to us. True love is not when we love those who love us back, but true love is when we love those people who have hurt us and disappointed us. I'm going to share a story with you, and there are parts of this story that are entirely fictional and part of the story that are entirely true, and I will let you figure out which parts are fictional and which parts are true. So every Monday morning, uh, God and I have a Zoom call. And so we talk, 
and I give them a report from the weekend who was in attendance, you know, how you guys are behaving, kind of, but not, not in nice list. We go over that. I, I give my report, and, uh, and we talk, and, and he sees how I'm doing. And he, and he also asked me, he says, Dennis, you know, what are you preaching on? And so this week I said, you know, God, I'm, I'm preaching on, you know, loving your enemies. And he said, do you need any help with that? And I go, God, it's loving your enemies. It's like Sunday school level stuff. I, I got this. He said, Dennis, are you sure you don't need help on your message? I'm like, God, you do know I went to Bible college and seminary, right? You remember that. He said, yeah, Dennis, I remember. Uh, but you sure you don't need my help? And I said, no, God, got this one coming. I said, maybe there's a preacher preaching on the book of Revelation somewhere that needs a little bit more help. This is easy stuff. I got this covered. So our Zoom call ended. And about an hour and a half later, I get a phone call from a police officer in Greenfield, Indiana. And this is how the conversation begins. He says, we are looking into a case right now, and your church is involved in it. Not exactly what you want to hear. Long story short, what's been happening is that there are thieves either at the post office, stealing checks straight from the post office, or going around to church mailboxes stealing checks. And so we've lost about 10 checks that were generated by the bank sent sent to the church. All of our other giving platforms, online giving, what you give in church, those are all securities. People literally either stealing it from the post office or out of the mailbox. And so he tells me all of that, and so now I'm dealing with that. And so after that phone call, I start feeling all of these emotions, such as anger. And I'm like, what type of low-down, no-good, dirty person would steal from the church? And I don't know the average temperature of hell and the geographical layout of hell, but if it is hotter in certain parts of hell, those people who stole these checks are going to be living there. Like, I'm like, turn up the heat, God, and send them there. That's what I'm thinking. But that's not the only emotions. Kind of as a man and competitive, you know, you don't ever like to feel like somebody got one over on you. How do I not notice this? And then some insecurity, like, hey, I'm supposed to be the, the shepherd of the sheep. I'm supposed to take care of people. And that includes the checks that they send. I'm dealing with all of these emotions, and just then I get a Zoom call, and sure enough, it's God. And he says, hey, Dennis, how's your sermon coming now? (laughs) Oh, my God, I may need your help this week. All of us have enemies in our life. We know what it is to have enemies. We all have people who hurt us, who disrespect us who steal from us, who take things that don't belong, who break their word to us, who are unfaithful to us, who talk bad about us. who are We all have those types of people. And knowing that we should love our enemies, as I discovered, is actually quite different than being able to love our enemies. And today what I want us to do is take some time to learn what it means to love our enemies how we need to prepare our hearts to be able to do that because we will most assuredly encounter enemies in our lifetime. So the first thing it means to love our enemies is that we love our enemies by blessing them. We love our enemies by blessing them. In the words of Jesus that we read earlier, said, but I, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Now, there's a lot of different definitions of, of blessing, but a, a simple one is this. Is to bless is like to shower undeserved and unexpected gifts onto another person. 
There, there's this, this sense of generosity, of outflowing. Blessing isn't like you're holding back or tempering. It's, it's like you're giving more than what's expected. You're, you're giving what wasn't expected. You're giving what's, what's undeserved. That's what it means to bless. The, the things that you earn or the things that you deserve or the things that are fair, that's not blessing. That's just proper recompense for what you've earned. But a blessing is something that you didn't earn and that you didn't expect. And what makes blessing our enemies such an undeserved and unexpected gift is that everything within us as human beings, we are just hardwired, all of our instincts, all of our natural desires that are, are just built into our subconscious, every moral and ethical code that we live by calls for wrongdoing to be met with retribution. Like, that, that's just within you as a human being. Is that if somebody does you wrong, you just instinctively meet wrong with wrong. And if we were honest, when we meet wrong with wrong, we want to make sure that what, what we do is at least a little bit worse than what they did. Just to get the message across, don't mess with me again, right? That's what we think of. When we hurt, we hurt back so quickly. You know, I think I've told you this before. I grew up with a sister who was a year and a little bit older and a brother who was two and a half years older. My brother and I fought like cats and dogs. Unfortunately, the overall record of fights between my brother and I, for me personally, is like 697 losses to one victory. We lost every fight except the last one. So what had happened was our family moved from the western part of Canada to the eastern part of Canada. I just graduated high school. I was young, I was 17, my sister was 18, my brother was 19. All five of us were living in a two-bedroom apartment. My brother, sister, and I were sharing a single bedroom. And so needless to say, we got on each other's nerves. So my brother and I were home for lunch one day from our respective jobs. And those of you who have an older brother will know exactly what I'm talking about. Well, my lovely brother, who I love very much, despite this story, used to always do, for 17 years of my life, he would come up to me and he would like go like this, go like this, and, and he would make me like jump back, like as, as if he was going to hit you, but not quite hit you. And then he would laugh, you know, he would laugh that you reacted. But this time, when he like flinched like this to hit me, something instinctually within me happened so quick. They say with Bruce Lee that Bruce Lee's hands were so fast they had to slow the movie down. So viewers could watch how quick his hands were. I'm not saying I'm Bruce Lee. I'm just saying when my punch landed on my brother's face, nobody saw it coming. And so my brother instantly has this fat lip. Here's the funny part of the story. We had an agreement between one another that we would never tell on each other, no matter what scars or wounds we inflicted on one another. And so my brother doesn't come home that night. We had a hockey game to play in. And so we play a late-night hockey game. He waits till the next day so that by the time he comes home with his fat lip, he told my parents he got the fat lip playing hockey. All of that to say, we hit back so quickly without even thinking about it. We strike back without even processing whether it's right or wrong. And even if we don't have the physical ability to strike back at our enemies, maybe our enemies aren't right there in front of us. Maybe our enemies are, are represented by a group of people or, or the government or something that we can't really get our hands on. Or maybe they're so much more powerful than us that we can't ever strike them back. That doesn't stop us from getting retribution. 
Because what we can't do physically, we do in our mind, don't we? How quickly do we seek retribution in our mind against uh, the people in our life who are our enemies? The thoughts that we have about them, how quickly do we think bad thoughts about our enemies? How quickly, like me, do we make sure that they have a reservation in the hottest geographic location in hell? How many times do we quickly entertain emotions in our life of bitterness and anger? And, and in the very moment that, that an enemy becomes an enemy, we all of a sudden have all of these negative emotions and it just comes out of nowhere. And how many times do we seek retribution against our enemies with our mouths? How many times do we curse our enemies and tell everybody who will listen how bad our enemies are? And as good as it might feel to do that, and as good as it might feel to, to get some type of an internal retribution against those who have done us harm, it's not at all the standard that God calls us as Christians to uphold. And it wasn't the standard that God demonstrated when He sent Jesus Christ the gift of love. The truth of the matter is that God calls us to bless our enemies. And what it means to bless our enemies is that we intentionally do good to our enemies. It means that we intentionally show kindness to the very people who showed us thoughtlessness. We show grace to those who exercise condemnation towards us. We show generosity to those who stole something from us. We think the best of those people who said things that ruined our reputation. And we speak positively to those people who have spoke harshly to us. And this blessing of our enemies is a major part of God's divine strategy. And Paul talked about this divine strategy in Romans 2 when he said, Don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? And God's standard for treating His enemies is that He shows them so much kindness and He shows them so much love that He wants to turn their hearts around. And so to bless our enemies means that we would rather see them experience God's love than pay us retribution. That when you think of your enemies, what you think of is, oh God, I pray that enemy of mine would come to know Your love like I know Your love. God, the wounds that are in my enemy's heart that cause them to act this way. God, I'm on my knees praying that You would heal those wounds. The, the selfishness and the pride and the lack of awareness and the ignorance that, that caused this person to act this way means that they are acting this way towards people that they love and they're hurting everywhere they go and there are broken people all around. God, would You bring them to an awareness and to a place of humility that they could see the sins in their life so that they're not ruining the relationship in their life. God, would You bless those people with everything that they need so that they won't ever have to steal from another person. That's the standard of love. And that's what the Christmas story teaches us. Secondly, 
we love our enemies, it means we love our enemies by releasing them. We release our enemies. What, then, what happens when, when we get an enemy or somebody becomes an enemy is, is it's almost like we freeze them in that moment. We capture them in that moment. It's like you press pause on life, and the very moment that a person became your enemy is just frozen in time. And they're just stuck there. And in our mind, that person is imprisoned in that moment, and that person can, it, it is simply the sum total of what they did to us. There's nothing that preceded what they did to us, and there's nothing that followed. They are what they did to us. They are the sin they committed against us. They are the hurt that they inflicted upon us. They are the words that they spoke. And we lock them into that place and we imprison them in that. And we don't ever think about them in any other way. We don't think it's even possible for them to do or be anything other than an enemy of ours. And we freeze them and we lock, that in, lock them into that place. And so based on whatever made them our enemy, we place a permanent judgment on them. They are my enemy. They will always be my enemy because of this one moment in time. Obviously, there's problems with that. There's a second problem when we kind of lock our enemies into place. Is that we have a tendency as human beings to imprison more than what we intend. Instead of just imprisoning our individual enemy, we also end up imprisoning whoever our enemy is associated with, whoever our enemy identifies with. So, for instance, if you happen to have a bad experience with a mechanic, we've got a couple mechanics in the room, I love you guys, but say you had a bad experience with a mechanic. It's not just that that mechanic took advantage of you. You start to say all mechanics are crooks. That one mechanic now causes every mechanic to be held in judgment in your heart. Have you ever found yourself saying that? You can't trust these types of people. But it's not just mechanics. Maybe you had a bad experience with a police officer. And now all of a sudden you say all police officers are corrupt. We can get a little bit deeper. And maybe you had a bad experience with someone who has a skin color different than yours. And now all of a sudden, you say all people of that skin color are my enemies. All people of that skin color act this way. This is what I'm going to expect of all of these people. Maybe it's social, economic. Maybe you had an encounter with a homeless person. All homeless people are this way. Maybe you had some rich person who offended you and say all Rich people are this way. All Republicans are this way. All Democrats are this way. All gay people are this way. All Muslims are this way. All Jews are this way. We even do it generationally. Listen, I understand that there are, are trends in Generation X and Generation Y and Generation Z. Yes, there, there are trends and those are very real things. But we have to be very, very careful that we don't group the generation that's coming up. We don't group them as all being the very same. Because let me tell you, there are some very unique people in every generation. There are trend busters. And when we treat a younger generation as one monolithic group, we miss out on a lot of very, very interesting people. 
So we are living in this polarized society where, where what is happening is like there's this magnetic gravitational pull away from individualism and into groups. And everybody is, is being pulled magnetically into their polarized groups. And everybody is gathering within their groups. We see this happening all over our culture right now. The people are moving from being identified individually to being identified by a group. And so then what happens now, instead of just two people having an issue with one another, you have entire groups that have issues with one another. Based on an individual's experience with somebody in that group, we now hold that whole group responsible. So what does all of this have to do with the Christmas story and loving our enemies? The story that we read, it said this, Herod gave the orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old or under. You may never have considered this, but what do you think was the emotional burden? How heavy was the emotional burden that Jesus had to carry on his shoulders knowing that his birth came at the expense of dozens, maybe hundreds, upwards to a thousand young boys, two and under being murdered? Can you imagine knowing that you were responsible for that? That because of my birth, this happened. Can you imagine how easy it would have been for Jesus to have anger, not just against Herod, but against all of Rome, against the systematic evils of Rome? Could you imagine how Jesus was triggered when he would see a Roman soldier walking with his sword, knowing that it was Roman soldiers who carried out the slaughter of young men? Can you imagine the emotions that Jesus carried around and how easy it would have been for Jesus to have hatred, not just against Herod who gave the order and not just against the soldiers who did it, but anybody associated with that whole regime. And then we find in Matthew 8, a Roman centurion walking up to Jesus because his servant is sick. And I wonder what Jesus was thinking as this man of war, carrying the insignia of Caesar on his chest, carrying his sword, bearing the scars of war, ruthless past approaches Jesus to seek healing for his servant. And how easy it would have been for Jesus to look at that man before he even got any closer and said, listen, bud, you take one step closer and you're going to regret. Who do you think you are asking me to heal your servant when it was you and the likes of you that killed all those boys? How easy it would have been for Jesus to hold that centurion responsible for the sins of Herod. But that's not at all what Jesus did. He welcomed this enemy in. He listened to the plight of the enemy. And He healed that enemy's servant. And then, as if that wasn't enough, as that centurion walked away, Jesus said of that man, greater faith I have not seen in all of Israel than this man. The ability for Jesus to release people from their groups and to see what was going on in their lives. I'm going to ask you this question. Is there a group of people that may have hurt you, that you might consider to be an enemy, that God is asking you to release. Forgive me, God, for judging all of and then fill in the blank. 
Forgive me for holding all of the blank people responsible for what this person did. What it means to give the gift of love is it means to release people from that moment and to release people who are guilty by association. Here's the last point I want to share today. That we love our enemies by praying for them. Jesus' final words that we, we read from Matthew 5 say, Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. I don't often geek out on Greek, but, but there's a very specific word for prayer in this verse. And the definition of that Greek word that's used here in Matthew 5 for prayer means this. To interact with the Lord by switching human wishes for His wishes as He imparts faith. So here's what that word of prayer means. It means we go to God and we have our wishes, our expectations, what we think is right, what we think should happen. And as we pray, we say, God, take all of these and give me what you wish to happen. And so when Jesus says, pray for your enemies, what he is saying is bring your enemy before God. Bring all of the feelings that you have about that person, all of the frustration, anger, hurt, resentment, bitterness, and give me all of that, and I will give you my heart, my wishes for that person. And so there is something deeply, deeply spiritual and transformative that happens when we pray for our enemies. And it's not something that transforms or changes in their life but it's something that transforms and changes in our life. As we pray for our enemies, our heart changes. What we wish to happen for that person. What we wish, what, what retribution we wish would be made. What punishment uh, and groveling that we wish this person would have to go through. We exchange that wish for what God wishes for that person. God's desire is that every enemy of His becomes a friend of His. That's His wish. God sent Jesus Christ so that His enemies would become His friends. And God calls us to want our enemies to become friends of God more than anything else. And I have the worship team come forward now. The gift of love was given. So that enemies could become friends. You're going to see on the screen behind me a question that I want to end this message with. We're going to take some reflection time to think about this question. The question is this. What enemy of yours does God want you to give the gift of love? What enemy of yours does God want you to give the gift of love? So the worship team is going to play quietly, and we're going to just pause for a moment, and then we're going to, to take communion. So, uh, if we could just bring the, the house lights down a little bit. I'm just going to invite you just to wait and to pray. If you're comfortable, just open up your hands on your lap and just say, God, could you bring to my mind any individual or any group that I've considered to be an enemy? Put on my heart that person who you want me to show the gift of love to. person I never thought I would ever give any kind of gift to. God, who is it that you are asking me to give the greatest gift to?
who is it that you're asking me to release from that moment in time where they hurt me? What people group have always done me wrong that you want me to believe can be something different than my past experiences have had? So let's just wait for maybe 60 or 90 seconds and just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. And then we're actually going to take communion together.